and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, Bent Tree Church. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. We're going to be in John chapter 3. I left you in great hands the last couple of weeks uh, with Pastor Jeff preaching. Jeff, we're so grateful for you, uh, just especially during a difficult time this year for us as we face a lot of obstacles in our own family with BB, and she's doing great in there. But we got away for a little bit of vacation and, uh, and got Jack and his bride Tori uh, moved to California to Reform Theological Seminary. They're going to be starting seminary there. Oh, where did I say? California, California, Florida. Sorry, they're the same thing to me. So, okay. So it's not Colorado. Yeah, Florida. So thankful for Pastor Hunter leading uh, even this morning, but leading also uh, our church as the executive pastor here at Bent Tree Church. And all the staff, really, and, and volunteer leaders that we have, so excited for what God is doing here at Bent Tree. If you're new here, maybe you've been here a couple of weeks, but I'm the new guy. Uh, you've not seen me before. Let me introduce myself to you. My name is Paul Trimble. I'm the senior pastor. Uh, as we get our Bibles out today, uh, get something to take notes with as well. Uh, we got a lot of notes, a lot of ground to cover. A couple of things before we get started, though. Uh, we have our starting point today after this gathering time right in that room. And so if you're not a part of the church, you're not a member, maybe you go to that. It'll tell you all about it, answer your questions, give you a space to ask some questions. That leads to membership, and we take membership really seriously here. Then Wednesday, we have this special opportunity. Uh, we have a, this wonderful time, uh, a worship night this coming Wednesday night. So it'll be a great pick me up. Come to that thing. So, well, if you have your smartphone here, you can download the Bible app and definitely look at these notes here. I want to start off our time a little bit differently. I want to challenge our paradigm. A paradigm is simply the way you view the world, right? It's like putting on a pair of glasses. It's how you look through those glasses, that system of thought at what we're experiencing this life, and it's a way we view things. So let's check out our paradigm. In other words, let's put it to the test, especially in how we view news. Good news, bad news, this is going to take some effort on your part because we get good news and bad news all the time. So we don't think so much of news as a big deal, do we? Let's try a little experiment, a little thought experiment. Let's say you lived in a little village a couple of thousand years ago. It's a tight-knit community. Everyone knows everyone else's business. And any travelers that come into your town, boy, word they carry of the outside world travels like wildfire. One day, you're going about your business, a rider comes galloping in, he is breathing heavy right into the middle of the one street of your town. Your town is little. It's a couple of thousand years ago. He is shouting at the top of his voice, there's a vast enemy army and they have surrounded your village. They are less than an hour's ride away from here. And if they attack, they will destroy everything in their path. So what do you do? You panic. 
Where is my wife? Where are my kids? Where are my parents, my grandparents? How do I get them all together? Where do I go? The village is surrounded. It's not like you can leave. So what do you do? You try to hide as best you can. That's bad news, right? You've got to take action, but you don't even know exactly what you do. You're just going to hide as best you can. Do you flee? Do you go do something else? What do you do? What you don't do is you don't think to yourself, hmm, I don't agree with that that bad news. I don't think it's fair that the enemy is coming. You don't have that reaction. No, no, no. For the next few hours, you are terrified as you probably get underneath your house, you know, hide under the floorboards. And as the fighting draws near, you hear the sounds of horses and battle and clanking of armor in the distance. You're peeking out from the little crack. You're wanting every little sound. You're telling, shh, to your kids. This is it. You hear a voice. You hear galloping of a horse, a man yelling. And you go, it's over with. Kids, be quiet. But as he comes in and you look through that little crack, it's the same rider at the top of his lungs this time. He says, the king has defeated the enemy in battle. The village is saved. Well, at first you don't get it. But then he repeats the message over. And and you realize this, this is good news, right? And this good news of what the king has done starts to sink in. You begin to yell and cheer. You cry tears of joy. You and your family have been delivered from the enemy. What you don't do is you think, you don't think, well, that's nice. What's for lunch? You don't think, oh, I think I'll take a nap now. No, this is good news, right? You celebrate. You dance a jig. That's a jig right there. You dance a jig. You throw a party. You hug and kiss even your old ugly neighbor next door. You've been saved. This is good news. Now, why is it good news? Because you knew the bad news first, right? Think about it. If the second writer had come in, the second time the writer comes in and told you of being saved by the king, before you knew about the enemy invading, well, the news is the same, but if you hadn't received the bad news first of your impending doom, the good news wouldn't be as sweet when you heard it, would it? Why well, tell you this little thought experiment, this story? Well, as we continue in this series in the Gospel of John, I want us to think about how we understand the words, the gospel. Now, you hear me say this a lot, and I'll say it a lot more. Gospel literally translates to good news. Write that down. Anglo-Saxon word is Godspell or good story. In Latin, evangelium, and in Greek, they both have good news or good telling. That's what the gospel means. Today, we take up John 3.16. This well-known verse has been called the gospel in miniature because it tells the good news for people that have been told the bad news. Now, why do I start challenging your paradigm right off the bat, your worldview of the gospel? Because so much of the United States hears the message of the gospel, the saving offer of Jesus, and they say, hmm, that's nice. What's for lunch? I don't think they know the bad news, do you? In fact, they don't want to know the bad news. They don't want to face the bad news. Bad news is bad news for a reason. They hear the words like, Jesus saves, though, and they go, Jesus saves. 
Huh. But they don't know what they need to be saved from, do they? Here's the problem I see in today's culture. Many times pastors, TV evangelists, dudes on the internet like to share the gospel like this. See if you find this true. They say, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Where there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there'll be streets of gold, everyone will have this nice house, they'll be nice with each other, your wildest hopes and dreams will come true. Does that sound good? And who wouldn't want that? (laughs) Or Or would you rather go to hell? Suffering, pain, all of that. Like if those were the two sign-up tables that we had here, right? After the service, you go, here's the sign-up table for hell. Here's the sign-up table for heaven. Nobody's over in this line. Everyone wants to go to heaven when they die. That's the kind of gospel message that has been shared for, well, as long as I've been alive, which is like 100 years. But today, as we continue in this series through the gospel, the good news of John titled, So That You May Believe... That's why we call it this. That's why John says he writes this. There truly is good news. But we also have to know what the bad news is. And this passage is going to open up some deep meaning to us of what the good news is. Well, let's go before the Lord and ask for his blessing. Would you bow your head with me? Let's just pray. Mm. God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, we have worshipped you in song. We've lifted our voices. We've lifted our hands. We've given back to you. Now we want to worship you studying your word in this time of preaching. Holy Spirit, you can have full access to my heart, to the hearts of these people. May you speak your word straight to the core of us. Speak through me. God, help me to only speak what you want your people to hear. Lord, we long to be in a closer relationship to you. Make us more like Jesus as we study the Bible together. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's get to our text in just a moment. But first, remember the setting. What's the setting this is taking place in? It's nighttime. Jesus is talking to this leader, this lead teacher of Israel named Nicodemus. Jesus has just answered Nicodemus' question that he has on his heart. And that question is, how can I get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus has told him, you must be what? Born again. I hoped for more. (laughs) Jesus said, you must be born. Yeah, there you go. And, And Jesus goes even further and tells him, hey, look, Nicodemus. He says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's not something that you do, Jesus is saying. It's something that happens to you, like your physical birth. You had nothing to do with it. The same is true with being born again, being regenerated. It is something that happens to you. But Nicodemus, he doesn't get it yet. If you would, let's go ahead and stand, if you can, in reverence to God's word being read. I'll read it. You listen carefully. Jesus says this in John 3, verse 14 through 18. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Praise God for his written word. Amen? You may be seated. We'll get to verse 16 in just a moment, but first let's see the context by going to the end of our little part there. Look at verse 18 in your Bible. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. Praise God. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is good news and bad news all together, wrapped together. First of all, what is the bad news? That we're all guilty. We all stand condemned already. We're born that way. Unless anyone who believes in him, meaning believes in Jesus, is not condemned, that's, that's good news. If we believe, we're not condemned. When we hear this phrase straight from Jesus' lips here, when he says, anyone who does not believe is already condemned, what does that mean? Well, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, look at the first half of the verse. For the wages of sin is what? Say it with me. Death. You could translate that phrase as saying, the direct result of your sin is death. Or payment for your sin is death. That's what you're owed. Now remember, the word death literally means separation. So our physical death would be our body separating from our spirit or our soul. But that's bad enough. If you're not a Christian, it's even worse. What this is talking about here is worse in that death eternally being separated from God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but also everyone else. Totally alone. As we have learned in this series, this is the way we come into the world because of original sin. Our default condition is that we are separated from God from the moment of our birth. It's the way we come in. That, that's what's so powerful in what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here is that being born again or that regenerated being an act of God, not us because we can't do it. Now think Carefully about this, if we are lost, guilty of our sin, and have no way to get to God on our own. Now, at the same time, the same verse again, let's look at it, Romans 6.23, and add the rest of it in. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal in Christ Jesus our Lord. How powerful is it to know that when God calls us to spiritual life from death, kind of like our story we were told at first, we were surrounded by the enemy and cut off. There was no way out, but the king had come and fought the enemy on our behalf to save us. Now here's the problem with analogies or stories, you try to use them. If you lean on them too hard, they start to break down. Have you ever noticed that? So let me change the picture for us. Let me give you another example to see if I can give you something that will speak to this next part. Let's say that there's a long line of prisoners, hundreds, maybe thousands of them, and they're in those old-fashioned black and white striped suits. You know what I mean? Prisons, they look like pajamas. There are guards watching them with high-powered rifles, lots of guards. These guys, these prisoners, they're rough looking. They're all guilty of the most heinous crimes. Boy, you name it, rape, murder, torture, and worse, they are unrepentant. They're only sorry because they got caught. 
And they, they look so mean and, and, and just awful that it gives you the shudders. But then some of them are like really clean cut and smiling. And that gives you the worst shudders, right? Because you know those guys are awful. You're going, they're probably like the murderers, right? These guys are under heavy guard. And you realize the reason why is because the thought hits you. If these guys were not in their chains, they're chained together, they'd do this all over again. You got the picture? All chained together, guards watching them. Go back to verse 14 with the picture of those prisoners in your mind. Look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now remember, we studied verse verse, verse 14 a few weeks back. You remember that? Give me a nod like you remember that. Okay, back in Moses' time, the Hebrew people, he was leading them out of Egypt. They had sinned, and God had sent poisonous snakes among them. And these snakes had bitten them. Some had already died from the poison in their blood. And God had told Moses, he says, here's what you do. You make an image out of a, of a snake, hold it up on a pole, and any person dying from the poison from these snakes, if they look up to that image, they will be healed and saved from the physical death. To be healed, they just had to do what? Look. It's another way to say believe. Now, what we looked at here, if you'll remember a few weeks ago, Jesus in verse 14 and verse 15 is linking that time of Moses and the snakes with Jesus' coming crucifixion, where Jesus would be lifted up on the cross, and if people would look to him as their perfect sacrifice for the sins, their sins, they would be saved. So grab a hold of this. Grab a hold of this. Back in both Moses' time with the snakes and with Jesus' time of crucifixion, what is Jesus saying that will save people? Look up in faith to the one who can save them. Trust what Jesus has done. And look what these were. Look at these words there. Who can be saved? Everyone who believes, it says. Now, for just a moment, flash back to that long line of prisoners in the black and white, kind of pajamas. They're all chained together, waiting to get loose, commit their crimes again. There's big guards there ready to shoot them. Is the offer of salvation and life made to them too? Because I'm thinking, God, these guys are far too gone to trust you as their savior. Look, they're messed up. They're waiting to get out and kill again. I'm thinking everyone who believes can have salvation and be healed and forgiven. Really, God, everyone? Eternal life, not temporary life? I mean, John chapter 1 says eternal life says it's right there. You're counted as a child of God? No, not these guys. But why would God offer salvation to that long line of prisoners? Why? Look in verse 16. It's our clue. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Just because you know this verse really well, even you non-Christians hearing my voice, don't miss the significance of it. Who is the world? Who is this addressing? Well, we could talk about this for hours and we will coming in the future. 
theologians tell you different things. They'll try to tell you a lot of different things. But let's just take this on face value right now. Let's start out there. Who is the world this is referring to? Is this the people in the world that are good? Or that long line of prisoners? Is it just the people that are not too bad? Let me answer it for you. It's not anybody but that long line of prisoners. It does not include any innocent people. And some of you are going like, wait, 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 wait. That can't be right, Paul. It's got to include the innocent people. But I promise, it's the long line of prisoners that are ready to do the crimes all over again if they could just get free of these chains. The offer is open to these prisoners. So you're thinking, why is it not open to the good people, the innocent ones? Here's why. And you got to get this down. Write this down. There are no innocent people. There's only the long line of prisoners. You with me? There are no innocent people. There's no good people. You go, yeah, no, I know some good people. No, you actually don't. Listen to how scripture describes people. Just people. Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless, worthless, worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Now, this is particularly bad. Watch. Their throat is an open grave. You didn't have to get harsh, did you? Apparently he does. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. He's comparing them to a snake. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Remember the prisoners? Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So one time, one more time. Picture the long line of prisoners in the chains. These guys are rough looking. They're guilty. Just waiting to get out of their chains. Now put my face in that lineup. I'm in the lineup. Put your face in that lineup. Turn to the person next to you. Look at them. They're, no, don't look right at them. I mean, they're one of the prisoners. Put their face right in that lineup. We're all guilty. Every one of us before Christ Jesus is a sinner. Guilty, guilty, guilty. There's no separate group of people that are less guilty. Do you see what I mean? Because although there are some sins, let's just admit that have a deeper impact on us or deeper impact on those around us. Ultimately, though, we're all guilty and deserving hell. That means that we can't be arguing, well, I'm bad, yes, but I'm not as bad as him or her or that guy next to me. Because the truth of the matter is, before Jesus comes and calls us out of those chains in that lineup, we are guilty. Think about it this way. If Jesus had never come to the earth to die for sins, would God be just, as in justice, would he be just in sending us all to hell? I'll wait. You give it a think. Yeah, he would. Would he be justified in sending us all to hell? Yes. Why? Because we're all guilty. We all deserve death. We all deserve hell. 
Now, this is key, key in understanding the deep love that we see in verse 16. Look at it again with me. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Those first two parts in there that we'll we'll study these. Let's take them apart. That first part. For God loved the world in this way. Who is the world mentioned here? It's just face value. Is it all people or a subset of people? We'll talk about this more, but how does he love the world? Well, God gave his one and only son, it says, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. The offer is the love that he loves the world. Who is the world? Everyone. Now, there are some good theologians that I respect who would disagree with me on some of this, but please listen closely. Let me see if I can explain. We'll get to this. We'll unpack it tons more. But I believe this, at least on the face value, is referring to all people at first. In other words, Jesus is making offer to every person ever, ever born. But some would argue, no, 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 Paul, that, that, if that were the case, then everyone in the world would be saved. And, and that's universalism. Universalism is, is, just, is just a false doctrine. It's not in the Bible. It's bad doctrine. It's heresy. So no, we don't believe that everyone in the world will be saved from their sin. We know that's false. For instance, we know Judas was not saved. He's not regenerated. He's not born again. That's straight from Jesus. But what I am saying is that the offer to believe in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord is a valid offer to all people, all the prisoners in that long line. Now hang with me. There are people that would disagree with me on that, would say that the term world here doesn't mean the entire world. And I would say I disagree respectfully, but I would say the offer is made to the entire world. We'll we'll get into this, the subset of this meaning. They would say that, no, John is, is saying that the offer of salvation is only those who would believe to all those future believers all over the world. They're the ones that he's making the offer to. They would say that those are called out by the spiritual death into life. There's some truth in that. We'll get to that. But the reason I humbly disagree with this is because the second part of the statement. Now hang with me. You can get this. The apostle John says he gave his one and only, his unique son, in other words, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have what? Eternal life. Look at the second part of the verse here. He... I put the, uh, the words in red here. God the Father, that's the he, gives his one and only son, Jesus, so that everyone who believes in him, Jesus, will not perish but have eternal life. Now, what is the qualifier here for those to be saved? Think critically. Think carefully. Those that look on Jesus Christ in faith, that's what we just studied, as the Son of God, as this perfect sacrifice for our sins, they put their trust in Jesus. They believe his death as the perfect sacrifice has covered all their sins, past, present, future sins, all sins. That's the qualifier. That is who Jesus said will be saved from their sins, that they are guilty of, those who believe. Now remember the last time when we were together, seems like forever ago, 
It was only a couple of weeks ago. But people have the responsibility to believe, but it is God alone that gives people the response ability. Do you see that? The ability to respond. It's that two tracks. Do you remember the railroad tracks going off to infinity? The two tracks that we studied last time, both are true, even if we cannot reconcile the two in our own head. In fact, you get to some really screwy theology when we try to come up with stuff outside of Scripture to try to make this work. Listen, we can all agree there's tension. It doesn't make sense to our little minds. But get it, it's because we have little minds to a God who is infinite. We know from studying verse 1 of chapter 3 to verse 15 these past few weeks, and specifically verse 8, being born again, regeneration comes from faith in Christ. And that is not from within us, but only a gift directed to us by the Father, made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus, bestowed on us by the Holy Spirit of God, the Trinity at work in our salvation. Now, remember, we did not have anything to do with our physical conception. We said earlier, our birth. The same is true, Jesus said, with our spiritual birth. Let that sink in. So think through what we all we know so far. If all people are sinful, we're all in that long line of uh, prisoners there, and no one is guilt-free before Jesus. If you picture that long line of prisoners that you and I we're a part of if all are in chains waiting to send more and facing hell as the justice of God and that only some of those prisoners are saved not because we decided to be saved but because they were born again or we were born again. These prisoners, they were given faith from the spirit to believe. God called them from death into life. He chose them out of all of the guilty prisoners in that long lineup. Now, how would that be injustice to save some of the people in those prisoners, some of those prisoners and not others? The offer was made to all people to believe in Jesus, wasn't it? Didn't it? Isn't that what it said? It's right there in verse 16. But think about this. There is justice and non-justice. Those are mutually exclusive terms. But you might argue that, well, according to John 3, what, what Jesus said in John six forty four, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws and I will raise him up on the last day. Why does God the Father choose some and not everybody? It's a difficult question. We'll wrestle with it, but... For his own divine purposes and ultimately to bring himself glory. That's the short answer. We looked at this some last time when we met, but we'll get to this a ton more because it's all through John. Ultimately, everything that God ever does is to reveal his glory. And you go, well, that seems like really, I don't know, it just rings hollow to us. Unless you understand that revealing his glory is revealing who he truly is. All of his greatness. And that's what we want. We want to see God in all of his greatness. His ultimate glory. Now remember, we looked at this last time. But there, this is worth repeating here. Um, there is a paradox that runs the entire length of the Bible. 
God's sovereign election, his choice, and man's responsibility to believe are parallel truths. Those are the two railroad tracks that we were referring to. God's sovereign election and man's responsibility to believe are parallel truths. If you try to jump those two tracks or try to make them work, you'll come up with heresy every time. You'll come up with a false gospel. Both of those things are true. And although we don't understand it, that does not change the fact that the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation this doctrine. A little side note here as we study and move forward through this, through the gospel of John. When people disagree with this doctrine, you'll see what they do is they argue an analogy and not scripture. Because there's no scripture that can argue against it. Let me point out something to you. There's a false doctrine that I personally fell in. I fell into for years. I was taught the false doctrine through Sunday school, through church. And I know many of you have, have fallen to this false doctrine as well. Here's the false doctrine and how it comes about. It reasons that if God is sovereign in election of, to save some and not others... And it's true that man has a responsibility to believe, to jump between those two tracks to make them work together in your mind. They would say, then what God must do is that God looks through time and looks into the future and determines who would believe. And then he chooses to save the people that would believe. I know I'm about to step on some toes. So you might want to pull them back just a little bit. But as your pastor... You have got to know that I say this in love. This is a false doctrine. Write this down. False doctrine alert. God does not choose to save some people because he noticed that in the future they would eventually choose him. Some of you are going, Paul, this is what I believe. You got to compare this to scripture. God does not choose to save people because he noticed that in the future they would eventually choose him. It sounds good on the surface. And many good Christ followers right here in this room have held this false position. But this cannot be true for a number of huge reasons. And we'll look at this more in the future again. But let me just give you a couple of reasons right now why this cannot be true. This will show it to you. First of all, there's not one scripture, and I mean not a zero, that people can claim to support their view of this. There's just no scripture. Some people go, well, I know one. Romans 8, 29. Okay, let's look at it. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And they would say, see, Paul, he foreknew. He foreknew. Some might think that word foreknew means that God based his decision to save them based on that person, how that person decides. Like somehow God can't save you unless you say it's okay. Like you're just a little bit more powerful than God on that. Here's the problem with that. I hope you get this. The word foreknow or foreknew in Romans 8.29, also in Romans 11.2, literally means foreloved and foreappointed. It means both things. Foreloved and foreappointed. God said, I love that one and I appoint that one to salvation. The word foreknow in Romans 8.29 or foreknew, either way, 
And Romans 11.2 literally means foreloved and foreappointed. In other words, before time began, God chose. What that word foreknow does not is express this idea of like you and I sitting down to watch the next Bronco game and trying to figure out who's going to win before or even during the game. That's not what it, it, it's saying at all. What it means is that Jesus is coming to earth. And I love this, that God goes after every single one of his lost sheep. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He says, I'm coming to save you. That, that's powerful. That's powerful. And, and believers in Christ, hear me. Our job as Christians is to go find the lost sheep. Tell them the gospel. Okay. We could hang out there. Second reason that this, this doctrine cannot be true is that if it were true that God based his choice on our choice, it would mean that our salvation then does not rest on Christ Jesus and his grace alone, but that it rests on my own ability to make a decision. Oh, do you see this? If that were the case, then it's like God giving me credit to believe and that is reason that he is saving me because I'm good enough somehow. And that's wrong. That's false doctrine. That would be you being going, hey, I was good enough to figure out the old Christian thing. You got to save me now. That's not how that works. You're one of the prisoners. The other problem with that is that before we're saved, we're wretched worthless, lost in sin, dead in our sin. Remember the long line of prisoners that are chained up waiting to commit sin? Third reason, I think this is probably the biggest one. God's never learned anything. He never learned something new. God is omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing, and he is outside of time, outside of space, Meaning there is nothing that was restraining him outside of himself. If this false doctrine were true, it would mean that God is waiting for us to have faith on our own apart from him. Something that he cannot control. And folks, there is nothing that God cannot control. Like someone, like someone, let me say this, like somehow God is saying, Hey, I, I, I did everything I could. I hope you believe in me, in Jesus, so then I could save you. Like somehow he's not mighty to save. <laughs> that's not an all-powerful God that says, that says that. That's not the God revealed in Scripture. No, this, this kind of doctrine... It is from a man-made God, a little G God, that is more like a cosmic cheerleader with pom-poms saying, you can do it, you can do it, try hard enough. Please, please, please. I mean, that is a God that has been invented out of someone's reasoning skills and go, this is how I think God should act. You don't find that God in Scripture. Oh, brothers and sisters, he is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. He does not need your permission to save you. In fact, let's just make this point here. And, and again, we'll see it more and more as we move forward through John. 
God did not make the salvation of his people just possible. With the death and resurrection of his son Jesus, he made it secure. That's good news. The battle's been won. God did not make salvation of his people just possible with the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. He made it secure. Listen to Jesus' own words to his followers here. This is Jesus talking, verse 39 of John 6. This is the will of of him who sent me. So he's talking about God the Father. This is the will of him who sent me. What's his will? That I, talking about Jesus, I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Amen. And I will raise him up on the last day. I'm counting on it. Jesus, in his death, doesn't lose one of his sheep his Father has given him. To argue different is to argue with Jesus. He goes, I didn't lose one of them. Now let's tie this back to John 3, 16. For God, God the Father, loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The offer of salvation is made to the entire world. Don't miss that. But the entire world didn't receive him, did it? We know that's true because we studied over and over chapter 1, verse 11 through 13. Let's look at it again. He, Jesus, I put the word Jesus here just to show you who he is. He, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name. Who were born not of natural descent. Or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The world did not receive him, although the offer was made, right? But to all who did receive him, so we know some received him, he gave them the right to be children of God. Why? Look at the qualifier. Those who believed on what? His name. Look, the word believe is in the present tense. How did this group of people believe in Jesus' name? Was it because they were born into the right family? It says no. It literally says who were born not of natural descent or of the will of flesh. Of the flesh, but don't miss it here. They were born, but born into what? Born again, regenerated. Now, why were they born again? Why were they regenerated? Look at that scripture. Because they were dead in their sins. Why were they born again? They couldn't live. They were dead in their sins. And if they were not born, not of their own will, it says that specifically, who does it say they were born by? (laughs) God, the will of God. That's what it says. God regenerates by the Holy Spirit through the death of Jesus. Someone say amen. That's good news. God chose them. He rescued them from their sinful life, their bondage, their chains. Out of that long line of prisoners, he chose to save some. 
The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Check this out. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord. So he's talking to believers. Because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit, through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you believe in the death of Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for your sins, if you believe in all that, all your sins are forgiven. Amen? And you have experienced that love. You have believed in the good news. So let's get back to our story we started with. Do you remember when we're hiding, we're looking out through the little cracks, we're waiting on our death to come because at any moment you're about to see the enemy soldiers come in, overrun our little town. Death for you and your family is intimate. Intimate. You remember? What's the bad news? In our story, it was made up. But the bad news is there's really bad news. Much more real than anything you have ever experienced. But praise God, there was a writer. A writer coming into town from the king, carrying the good news. What made you cheer at dancing jig when... When the writer brought the good news, three reasons. Because first, he came to your village to tell you the message. Second, he proclaimed the good news of the king's victory over the enemy. And third, you believed it. Please get this. How do people believe and get the good news? People must hear the gospel to be saved. They must hear or or read it, right? They gotta hear the gospel story. The good telling, the good news. Now I've heard well-meaning Christians argue with a statement that with that statement, but they don't have a leg to stand on scripturally. They say if God is all powerful and nothing limits him, Paul, then he can save people any way he wants to. And although it's true, God is all powerful. He has the ability to do what he wants to. What he cannot do is contradict himself. He cannot. He's immutable. Or in other words, he cannot cease being himself. He cannot violate his own nature. Because he's God. Here's what we've got to see here. God is not only sovereign in who he saves. He's sovereign even in how he saves people. Write that down. That's good. God is not only sovereign in who he saves, he is sovereign in how he saves. And let's add this, and when he saves. God is not only sovereign in who he saves, he's sovereign in how he saves and when he saves. The reason that this is so very important to understand is our role, I'm talking to Christians in the house right now, is to do one thing And that's what Jesus told us himself our marching orders are. He says, your purpose, Matthew 28, 18, 
Jesus came near. This is right after his resurrection. He came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. By the way, who gave him that authority? God the Father. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So what does he tell people to do? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our job is to preach the gospel, to share the good news, to make disciples, teaching people to believe everything that Jesus taught us, which is the entire Bible, right? As a Christian, you are the rider galloping into the village that has heard the bad news. You are the rider that gallops into that village and shares the good news about Jesus defeating the enemy, Satan. And the battle has been won. (laughs) And the death and sin, they're on the outskirts of town. Jesus whipped them. He defeated them. And you don't have to live in fear anymore. Don't miss this. God has created you. And I'm looking at people right now. He's created you for the purpose of sharing the gospel and growing people in their faith. Listen, he put you in the neighborhood, in the house you're in to share the gospel. It's no accident. He put you in that job where you are to share with the gospel with those people that need to hear the good news. He put you in the school, students. Listen to me. To share the gospel, you are the king's emissary. To ride into the village and say, the battle has been won. Don't be thinking that there's such a thing as chance. And that God is not somehow in control. There's a false teaching. That goes something like this. About reformed doctrine that gets tagged with people who are not reformed in their doctrine. They will say, well, if what you're saying, Paul, is true, then that would mean we don't have to witness. Just admit it. You thought about this. I've thought about it too. We don't have to witness. That we don't have to share the gospel. But this is a false statement. There is, that is not reformed doctrine. There is a a hyper-Calvinism that we disagree with that says we just stay home and we don't. God will save them however But the truth is, in fact, if you look throughout history, since the church began 2,000 years ago, it has been Christians that hold to the doctrines of grace in the reform circle that have done the lion's share of spreading the gospel in the mission movements around the world. You just look at history, baby. It'll tell the truth. People that believe in the false doctrine that people can get saved that have not heard the gospel are actually the ones that don't tend to share the gospel because they just say, well, just let God handle that. It doesn't mean that, you know, we have to go to the the dark parts of Africa or China or uh, South America to share the gospel because God can just send a dream or send those. And praise God, he does send dreams. But we are the ones that ride into the village and carry the gospel message. And since people say this, Since they believe that God can save people without the gospel being preached, they have no urgency to go and share the gospel. Listen, that's so wrong. 
that's so ungodly, so unbiblical. That's a man-made doctrine. Because the Apostle Paul tells us this in Romans 10 verse 14. He says, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the people, not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Where does faith come from? The gospel. But I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they did. Their voice has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. When Jesus comes back, I often get the question, when will that be? We don't know. (laughs) Run from any guy that'll tell you a date. But the answer... Is he comes back when all those he has called to life hear the gospel and respond. When all of his people have been reached. Next time we'll dive deeper into John 3.16. Don't miss it. We're going to hang out here for a bit. It's going to change your life. It has mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just humbled that you would choose us out of that, that group of prisoners that are guilty. God, I'm sorry that even now, even being redeemed, I still long to sin. That you would call us, God? I'm just humbled by by that. I, I see your love that you went to, the ends you went to, sending your son to save us. Thank you, God. And if you're a Christian, just thank him right now for saving you. By giving you love that when you were ready to spit in his face. He said I love you enough to send my son to take your place. And maybe if you're a Christian right now. You just thank him for whoever shared the gospel with you. Maybe it was a pastor like me from the stage. Maybe it was a family member or Sunday school teacher. Someone at work or school. Just thank him. Where did you hear the gospel message? It was no accident that you heard it. God ordered the means of you hearing the gospel. So if you're a Christian right now, you just keep praying and keep thanking God and pray for me right now and those that don't know Jesus in this room. If you're in this room or those listening online right now, look up here with me if you're not a Christian. If you don't know if you're a Christian, It really sounds more difficult than it really is. Like you're screwed up, right? I don't have to convince you you're sinful. You sinned this morning, probably sinning right now some way. How are you saved then? Jesus says, look to me in faith. Believe that my life, my perfect life, and my death was a payment for your sins. That's it. Do you see what you did? I'm like the writer in our story we started with. I just rode into town. I proclaim 
the good news to you and you believed it. You are saved. Not because I saved you. Not because you saved you. But because Jesus called you to life through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. God himself speaking to you right now. Now why did he choose you and not someone else? Ultimately for his glory, but I don't know why he chose you. And I don't know why right now. But we just know that he did. You, me, we deserve hell. But what do we get? We get the love of Christ. The love of God demonstrated in Christ coming to die in your place. So that's what saves you. Not a prayer, but you believing with the power of the Spirit giving you faith. Now, if I were you, I would do this. I would thank God. That's prayer. It's not saving you. You're just talking to God. Talk to God right now and say, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for waking me from the dead. Thank you for giving me life in Christ Jesus. <laughs> now listen. You know how I said you just probably sinned this morning? Me too. Christians, we still wrestle with the desire to sin. Boy, you name it, Christians wrestle with it. And even if you sin, that sin is also covered. Here's what I'm saying, is although you're screwed up, you, you are messed up, you have wrong desires, here's what you're, you're missing here. You were declared righteous before God because of what Jesus did. So now start to follow Jesus in all your ways. Come to church, do what he says, you'll start growing in your faith. You've been made right because of Jesus, not you. Now it's your turn, working through the Spirit to start growing, start becoming a Christian, start sharing the gospel. So end your prayer like this. Say, you can have all my tomorrows. Help me to not sin as much. Help me to start following you. Help me to love people. Help me to have right desires. And then end it like this. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.